it, I should be the change. Ain't no doubt about it, you should be the change. Ain't no way around it if you're tired of the same. You wanna make a difference, you should be the change. Oh, oh, oh. Yeah, yeah, oh, oh. Yeah, yeah, oh, oh. Yeah, yeah, oh, oh. Good evening, Longhorns. Fran Harris with a very special guest for us tonight. Just not just for you, but for us tonight. Thais Fassmore was born in Los Angeles and grew up in Pasadena, California. She earned her undergraduate degree from UCLA and her master's from the University of Texas at Austin in Human Dimensions of Organizations. After graduating from UCLA, where she studied African-American studies and English, she started teaching second grade in Compton, California. Compton in the house while studying acting by night at the Beverly Hills Playhouse. Shortly thereafter, her life got really interesting because she married Leonard Moore and moved to Baton Rouge, Louisiana. There she studied playwriting at LSU and with the support of her husband and family, opened the Black Theater Company of Baton Rouge, where she produced, directed, and acted in many of her own works. Upon moving to Austin, she studied acting at UT and eventually started working at UT as a program coordinator for a high school outreach program. She and Dr. Tiffany T. Lewis started an internationally known holistic development program called the Fearless Leadership Institute, also known as FLY, which serves over 300 black and brown women at UT each year. Y'all, let's give a big Longhorn welcome to the fly girl, sister, how'd you get so fly? Thais Bassmore, welcome to the program. How are you? I'm good, thank you, friend. Thank you so much for inviting me to this special show and what an honor to be able to have a conversation with you. Absolutely excited about it, absolutely excited about it. When I got the call and said, hey, we're resuming the interview series and you're gonna be interviewing Thais, are you available? I was like, absolutely, it's about to be on. So, so glad to see you, glad that you're doing well, you look well, and let's just jump into it. I know folks are watching from, you know, their quarantine homes that, you know, during the COVID-19 situation and it's always been great to get on here and hear what Longhorns, whether regardless of how they got attached to the Longhorn tradition, how they are doing. And I've had the privilege of actually working with Thais on a couple of programs and glad to see that Fly is alive and well. So let's start off looking at your life now, but I love for people to go back and to say, when you were in high school, when you were in middle school, what did you think you would be doing at this point in your life? Um, I didn't have a lot of dreams and goals. Um, that wasn't a part of like my upbringing. I was great at, in academics. I was a straight A student for the most part. Um, but I didn't have like big plans. I knew I wanted to be married. I knew I wanted to have children because I grew up around a lot of family. I'm the youngest of seven um, children, the youngest of uh, 56 grandchildren on wow. my dad's side alone. And so family was like key. And so I think I, um, my biggest thing was I wanted to be a doctor, a medical doctor, right? And that was only because growing up, all you'd hear about, about successful people were they were either doctors, lawyers, or teachers, right? And so mm -hmm. I was like, well, I don't wanna be a lawyer and <laughs> teachers don't make that much money. So I'm gonna be a doctor because I was good in science and math, but I didn't really have a, an idea of how that was supposed to happen. I didn't know the steps that it took. And for me, high school, it was just a matter of 
getting through each day. I went to a very um, small private school in Los Angeles. Um, it was so racist. The headmaster was so racist. Like I felt like I was a target. I was getting in trouble all the time in middle school and high school. Some of it, my bad, you know, I was very mischievous and class clown. Um, but some of it, it was just a target on my back. And I was in a series of bad relationships. Um, mm -hmm. One was sexually abusive. One was emotionally abusive. One was verbally abusive. I felt like I was dating the same man, just a different name. Um, and I was yeah. just in a continual cycle. And so by the time I was in 11th grade, I was just depressed. I remember um, going to the bathroom in the 11th grade every lunch period because I couldn't stand to sit with the people who I was around because some of those boyfriends were in that friend group, those ex-boyfriends. Yeah. And I would just go to the bathroom and stay in the stall the whole time, the whole lunch period cry my eyes out when the bell rang, then I would go to class. So for me, it was just taking, going day by day. I was, I would play basketball and I played volleyball. So that's probably what carried me and, and kept me. And, and if it wasn't for my, one of my cousins, I don't know if I would have even gone to college. She was like, she got a hold of me in 12th grade. She said, apply to UCLA. I was like, I don't want to go there. She was like, I said, apply. And I applied <laughs> and I got in. And she made sure I got in. And if it wasn't for her, um, yeah, I don't know. I didn't have a lot of dreams, you know? Yeah. Um, so I'm thankful for her. Yeah, what was it What was it like growing up in a family where there was a lot of, sounds like there was a lot of uh, love. There was a lot of camaraderie. There were a lot of people. What were, what did the people in your life actually do? Because when I look at my life, my uncles, you can look at my uncles, I had lots of them they all were like the same guy, right? They all did, they either worked on cars or they did this, they had, they had restaurants. But what was it like in your family? What did you see that you could aspire to do? What did the people aspire to do in your family? Wow, you know, it's funny, like we talk about this now in our family, how every year we have family reunions, hundreds of people there, but we never shared what people did, what they were successful at. Like you just didn't know that you would come together, you would eat barbecue, you would yell at each other, play volleyball, play some dominoes, and then you would go it's your hard. separate ways. But you didn't yeah. know that she owned this business or she was head of, um, or she, she's head of diversity now. Of course, they didn't really have diversity programs back right. then, but she was head of diversity program or she's a lawyer. You like, you didn't know those things. You just, mm -hmm. this was your family. And for some reason that didn't matter. And when I'm the youngest of seven born to very old parents so yeah. like my my father was born in 1929 my mother was born in 1935 and so both of them were born in the south one in Louisiana one in Arkansas and both families um, migrated to California because of the horrors in Louisiana and Arkansas mm -hmm. and I won't mm -hmm. go into their specific familial stories but both of them were horrific and they had to to get away and my dad's family moved to Chowchilla, California, and they um, were the first landowners, first black landowners in Chowchilla, California, and they owned a cotton farm. So my dad grew up picking cotton and he was born to old parents too. And so I say that to say, I'm only three generations removed from slavery. So my great grandparents yeah. were most of them were enslaved and two of the white men on one on either side were slave owners. Um, 
hence the, the skin color. People are always like, what you mix with? Black and black, and then black and black, and then black and until you get right there, and there's the two white men. <laughs> there they go. Um, <laughs> and so it wasn't about, it wasn't a lot about going to school and getting an education for us. It was about just working and working hard and doing what's in front of you. And um, my dad, when, you know, he was very outspoken and, ah, you know, uh, just a hunter and had guns all over the place because he hunted and he picked cotton and he was one of 14. But when he was around white people, he would, he would bow his head and yes, sir. You know, and, and me seeing yeah. that um, in, my, in my mother's situation, very similar. It was a matter of just, I feel like just getting along and doing day by day. Was there a lot of love? Yes. Um, all my siblings are older, so I saw a lot. I grew up in LA, so there was a crackheads, like just walking the streets. We had, you know, crack houses down the street. Um, it was just a lot. And I would say that um, in the 70s and 80s, when they flooded Los Angeles with drugs and guns, a large portion of my older first cousins got hooked on cocaine and crack, rather. Um, and so, yeah, it wasn't education. Some of them made it through the cracks and, and became very successful, but a lot of them, it was just day-to-day -day life, you know, and, and things like that, yeah. so. Yeah, it's, it's mm -hmm. interesting you said that about what your dad, how large his personality was. My dad has very big personality, you know, class clown, funny guy or whatever. And during the inauguration this year, we, I happened to be in Dallas and spending time with my dad. He's sitting in a chair, I'm sitting here, and I just watched him watch the inauguration and I said to him dad what was it like because he was born in 33 I said what was it like growing up during in the climate the racial climate and he said you know you would see white men white people or whatever and you would grin and smile even if you weren't happy and that just when you did that with your dad like I literally almost started crying because I could see that I could feel from him saying even if you weren't happy you, yes, sir, you, you, you went into this whole thing about being glad that you, you know, and so the things that we've seen, and to your point, our families were what put the foot in front of the next foot and let's just keep it moving to the next day. And there's not a whole lot of talking about aspirations and dreams and becoming millionaires and changing the world. So, but you are yet and still, as my dad likes to say, yet and still, you are in a position now of changing the world. And so I wanna talk about, because I've seen what you do and I've felt and been in the room when you were doing what you do and yet you describe where you came from and, and what it was like and you still are here in this place and still you're rising. How do you think you were able to turn the corner to believe that you could change the world because you are changing the world with these brown and, and black women? Mm. Thank you so much for that. Um, how do I think I turned the corner? That's <laughs> sounds like such a simple question, but such a <laughs> a long answer, like years worth of answer of right. a response. So I'll try yeah. and figure out which parts to pull out, but um, or even I just one of those pivotal moments. You know, it doesn't have to be the full story. Like those two or three moments that were you like mm -hmm. something changed in me when that happened, or yeah. Um, so like I said, high school was one thing. College was a whole nother thing. It's where I got addicted to alcohol. Um, addict, I was started using drugs 
and I got pregnant. I had a miscarriage, I miscarriage, I miscarried twins. And again, I ended up on a whole nother level of depression. And I ended up being suicidal and wanted to drop out of school. And I had a cousin whose house I would go to almost every weekend. And she had the best hugs in the world. Um, some, I think sometimes we underestimate a hug and a hug from a big cousin Mm, her name was Patrice and we called her Tracy. And I went to her one particular time and just shared how I didn't feel like I could go on and how the guy had hurt me and the things that he had done to me. Um, and in particular, uh, my self-esteem was so in the trash can that there was one time when I went to his dorm room, I went to UCLA, he went to another school in the Valley and I drove to his dorm to visit him late at night you know what that's called, right? A booty call. <laughs> he wasn't in his dorm. And I went around knocking, looking for him. First of all, no, you know, first of all, I shouldn't have been driving that late at night across town, across the mountains and valleys to see him, first of all. <laughs> Secondly, um, he wasn't in his dorm room when he said he was going to be there. And I shouldn't have been knocking. You know, this is all later when you realize that. Right. And so, right. So somebody said he's in such and such's room. And it was this girl who he was um, on the track team with who already made me feel kind of funny. Right. So mm -hmm. I go knocking on their door. And when I, um, he lets me in and I'm thinking, I, I don't need to come in. You need to come out. But I go in <laughs> and <laughs> I go in and we end up spending the night there. The two of them slept in her bed, her little twin size bed together. And I slept on the floor next to the bed. That's where my, my self-esteem was, on the floor. Mm. And so that was the guy who just basically took advantage, I feel like, of everything who I, that I had been through and just stepped on it. Um, and so my cousin that night when I was telling her the things that I had been through, she just wrapped her arms around me and she held me and she prayed and she didn't let go. And I promise you, I feel like life just poured into me at that moment, just whoo. Yeah. Um, and so I appreciate her. And that's one thing I do with the young ladies now is I hug them and I hold on to them. And when I'm holding on to them, I'm praying for them. And mm -hmm. you know, I know not everybody's a believer, but I'm a believer. So while I'm holding on to you, I'm just gonna pray for God to enhance your life and hold on to you and love you. Yeah. And um, so that was a turning point. Another turning point was around that same time period when I was still suicidal, an older lady told me, um, she said, baby, I want you to go home and I want you to lay on your floor, lay prostrate. And I want you to tell the Lord everything you told me. And um, ask him if he's real, ask him if he loves you. And so, cause I didn't feel like God was real. You know, I grew up in church, but I was like, mm, if God was real, he wouldn't let all this happen to me. Sure. And yeah. so I, I did what she did. I laid prostrate and I cried myself to sleep right there on the floor. And I, I told God, I didn't think he was real, but if he was, please show me. Show um, me something. Please tell me. Huh? <laughs> show right, me show something. Me something. Yeah. Right, I gotta see. And so yeah. sure enough, that next morning I woke up and me and my roommate, we would always go to the beach, Venice Beach, and go body surfing. And mm -hmm. so we got caught in a riptide that day. And um, 
the lifeguard, she was close enough to where the lifeguards came and grabbed her and pulled her out. And they were pulling out people all along the coast. In fact, 13 people died that day um, along the coast, caught in riptides. And I was almost one of them because I was being taken further and further out. I was swimming, I was struggling, I was trying to put my feet on the bottom, I was trying to do everything, but nothing was happening. happening. And all of a sudden, everything got really quiet and surreal. And I could actually feel like my person, my inner man separating from my body. And I was looking at myself, like hovering over myself. Mm-hmm. And I was like, is this it? You know, I stopped struggling. I stopped screaming. I said, God, is this it? If you love me, please save me. And at that moment, this man started walking towards me. Now, mind you, I couldn't put my feet anywhere on the bottom, but he was walking towards me and he reached out his hand and I reached for his hand and another wave took me back again. I said, God, if you're real, please save me. And the man reached out his hand again. I grabbed his hand and he walked me all the way into shore and set me next to my friend. The lifeguards came and took over my breathing. And um, my friend who grew up not believing in God at all, she said, Thais, that was an angel. And I was like, yeah, okay, an angel, all right. Um, but I was so relieved. I was just like, thank you, sir. You know, thank you for saving me. And I, I went to a, a choir rehearsal that night and my mom was like, Thais, tell your story. Tell about how the man pulled you out of the ocean. Right. And I did. And my cousin who was there, who I hadn't seen in a couple of years, she said, Thais, do you know last night my daughter had a dream that you drowned in the ocean? And she said, God woke her up and said, pray that I'll send an angel to save her. Mm. I said, oh, okay. Well, he made a believer out of me at that moment. And I said, God is real. I feel like I was saying, I am real. I do love you. And even though you're suicidal, suicidal, it's not your life to take. When I'm ready to take you, I will. And until that time, I have a plan and a purpose for you. And um, I didn't know what it was, but I said, I'm, I'm all ears. You know, yeah, you're down for it. You're down for it. I'm down. Let me, let's go back. Yeah, let's go back to to college. Let's go back to a couple of the things that you said were kind of pivotal moments in your life. And the reason I want to go back is because I know a lot of times when we do interviews, we kind of chronologically walk through what we've been through and those kinds of things. But I'm struck by the fact that you are sharing all these unflattering things that happened in your life and not many people would do that. How did you come to the place where you became willing to just lay it out there and tell this story about what's happening in your life. I mean, you can tell me that you started off doing it that way and I'll believe you, but I think for most of us, you have to grow into a place where you're comfortable and confident and courageous enough to just say, here I, you know, here I am. So how did that come about for you? Hmm. I feel like I was, I didn't like my mother's silence. I could mm. tell she was hurting. She would wash dishes and tears would just stream down her eyes. They would drip into the dishwater. I say, mommy, what's wrong? What's bothering you? She say, oh, nothing, sweetie, I'm okay. Yeah. And I was like, there's a lot wrong. I can, mm-hmm. you can see it, you're wearing it, but she never shared it. And to this day, she is 86 years old and she has barely told a little bit of her story. She told me a little bit at one point um but she hasn't shared it with anybody and she wears it and she holds it and um I hate that for her and I said I wouldn't do that you know um but but I've had to learn when to share 
when not mm -hmm. to share, what to share, how much is too much and how much <laughs> is not enough. <laughs> and knowing that my, when I share, it, it gives me freedom. It takes a little bit of it off of me, but it gives space in the room for the other ladies who are dealing yeah. with something similar to say me yeah. too. Yeah, absolutely. Let's talk about the Fearless Leader Institute. Um, just happens, you know, to, to say fly or whatever, but how did the name come about? How did the organization come about? How did the movement come about? Mm -hmm. Yes. So um, my, I wanted to start something for women at UT. Well, I was working at UT in DDCE and I was doing event planning and um, I was already like a mentor to a lot of the young ladies because they went, we went to the same church and they mm -hmm. would ask me to come speak at their events. And so I was like, wow, it'd be nice to be able to hold something on a regular basis, you know, not just wait till I'm invited where I can share and they can share. Um, because I knew strongly that, yeah, we're in school, but if your personal life is jacked up, it's gonna bleed over and affect your academics. I knew that firsthand, right? And so at the same time, a colleague of mine who I knew kind of a little bit, um, she wanted to start something for black women to help them academically and professionally. And so my husband, Dr. Moore, he knew about both of our ideas and he encouraged us to um, marry them. And so we were both kind of like, okay, you know, I'll see what, what she's thinking. And we sat down and it sounded perfect to like build a holistic development program for black women at UT. And so I think first we came up with the acronym. We knew the last part, we, we knew we wanted it to be a leadership institute, mm -hmm. um, but we were like, let's pick a letter that kind of goes with L-I and we we're like, fly. Yeah. And then, so we were trying to pick different F words and we had about 20 words down and we were like fearless, you know, that's perfect. And I know that in life, I don't think you will ever be completely void of, of fear but I do believe mm -hmm. you can learn to fear less mm -hmm. um, with, mm -hmm. if you're equipped mm -hmm. and you have the tools and you have the love and support. Yeah, I love that because I never, I never felt like that was about being void of fear, you know, because I'm certainly not one of those people who is like, I don't fear anything. And I like, I do, and I do it anyway. That's you, generally, it comes down to, are you feeling afraid? Are you feeling uncomfortable? Yeah, I am, but I got to do this thing. I have to do this thing, you know? And so I typically talk to people about things that are their career versus their calling. And mm -hmm. so how do you feel about what you're doing now? Is it, is it your career or is it your, or more of your calling? And they obviously can be both, but what do you feel you lean more towards and lean into? You have some great questions. Um, <laughs> I would say it's both, but I would mm -hmm. definitely say it's a calling. Um, because I feel like it's outside of the box. It's not something, we don't go by a script. We don't have things that we must do. It's just unique to every person that we meet, you know? Yeah. So if I meet someone, you know, just like I saw my mom wearing her pain, I could see meet a young lady in a minute, you know? Yeah. Not know specifically what she dealt with, but I can see how her eyes gaze or how, how she looks down or how her shoulders are that she's carrying something. And so based upon what she's dealing with and based upon our personality, you know, we try to meet the need. And I believe that is um, a calling for sure. Um, yeah. Thankfully, thank God I'm able to get paid for it. But the first 
five years of doing it, I did not get paid for it. In fact, I was coming out of my pocket to pay for food and right. Tiffany was as well, you know, and then I believe that if you're doing what you're called to do, God will make room for you to get paid for it. And not always, but he does. And yeah, so yeah. that is the case. So let's talk a little bit about some of the challenges that are facing young women. I happen to, I was sharing with you before we got on the air that one of my, my nieces, this was kind of like my daughter passed away a couple a couple weeks ago. And then I have a niece who's like 20 something and another one who's like 30 something. So there are some issues and challenges and opportunities that are very specific to our young black women. What are you seeing as maybe two to three of, of some of the challenges that you're helping them navigate today? Hmm. I'm sorry for your loss. Um, like I said earlier, my heart sits with you mm -hmm. and um, mm -hmm. um, but yes, I think the challenges that young women are facing today aren't very different from the challenges that we face. They might look different. They might be packaged different just because, you know, we have social media now. And in fact, I think social media has heightened some of right. the issues, you know, um, because you can't really hide or you try to hide and you just put on a good face, but really you're hurting mm -hmm. behind the screen. Um, but when I think of some of the students that we've dealt with, in the past few years, we had a student who, you know, was pregnant and needed, um, wanted an abortion, but she was scared to tell her parents. And so had to yeah. help her walk through that. Another student who was struggling with domestic abuse, alcohol abuse, drug abuse, um, mm -hmm. and she was in trouble with the law. We, Tiffany and I went and sat in court with her several times. Um, wow. And she was on pro uh, academic probation. And now today she is obtaining her master's degree. Like, and she'll tell you that I've, if it wasn't for you all, I wouldn't have even graduated. I wouldn't even be here. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I had another student who was cutting herself. And yeah. I know there's, you know, of course I pointed her to therapy and, you know, gave her the love and talked to her a lot. But one thing I just sat with her and I looked her in her eyes and she knew I loved her because we got the relationship. I said, mm -hmm. if you ever, pick up that thing to cut yourself again. You're going to have to deal with me. You know, sometimes you got to deal with, I feel like depending on their background, cut them out of a certain way. And she was just kind of like, okay. I was like, and so next time I saw her, have you picked up that cutting utensil yet? No, ma'am. Yep, yep, yep. You know, yep. and another yep. student, same thing. She was trying to overdose on pills. Don't you ever pick up no pill, a whole bunch of pills and put them in your system again. Do you understand me? <laughs> yes, yes, ma'am. Um, so sometimes yeah. there's, there's, <laughs> yeah, like I feel you like I've had those conversations where you like at lunch or dinner, you're like, you know, well, let me tell you something like your mother used to, let me tell you something. What we're not going to do is this right. over some so-and-so over some fill in the blank. What we're not going to do, you know, it, because sometimes that's where that's, that's what needs, what's needed to rattle them and shake them out of that place where they are so right. that they can proceed to you know to get help and be open to more help how do you exactly. not take all of that home with you and you probably do but how do you not let that completely invade the space that you and your family are building for your own peace and sanctity Whew. um it, i do take it home with me and yeah. um i've had to sometimes pull back so like if i know i have a meeting and i know what the young lady is going to talk about is heavy and I'm dealing with something with my own daughter. And I have, you know, I have three teenagers, one who just crossed over, I guess, to being a, a young adult. She's 18. Now that they're a little older, I've had to pull back a little bit and I am not as available. 
um, just yeah. for my own sanity, because it's not just your story, but it's all the stories that I'm, I'm holding on to. And, and, you know, of course, I figure out ways to, you know, not carry them. You know, I'm, I myself sometimes have to go to therapy just to be able to talk about it and release it. But it does because you, you love the young ladies. They become your babies and um, you do carry it. But I, I spend a lot of time on my knees and um, sometimes I have a little drink of wine and I have a lot of fun with my friends, like laughter. Laughter, yeah. oh, I can laugh like so hard where I, I piss on myself, excuse me. Mm -hmm. um, but that's just, laughter is part of my medicine, so. Absolutely. So we're talking about family. We're gonna talk about some powerful black women in a moment, but since we were on the subject of family, I thought it probably is in some folks' minds who are watching right now as to how you not balance. I would never even purport to say that people balance things, but you integrate things in your family. And you know, you're married to a guy who uh, has some opinions. You're married to a guy who has a vision for his life and for what he's been put here to do. And you are the same way. You guys have, I've seen you guys, and I'm like the power couple. That's because that's how I felt about the, the work that you do. How do you integrate your callings and still maintain a healthy balance within your relationship with your, with each other and with your children? Like I said, you have some good questions. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, I will say when we first got married and for those first several years, it was challenging because I moved from California with all my family to Louisiana <laughs> where he was with just him. Oh, and wow. yeah, Ooh. and I'm the baby, like yeah. I said, of a lot of people, you know, everybody's little baby, everybody's little cousin. And so that was hard. Like I was very needy. And he was like, Tonys, I, I, I can't be all the people to you. I can't be all your cousins, all your brothers, all your sisters, your mom and dad. I can't be all them. That's too much. And I was just like, oh, what do I do? You know, I was just like fragile and like, I don't know what to do with this. So I had to grow up, you know, mm -hmm. and being on campus at LSU with him and being on campus here when we moved to Austin, I was always Dr. Moore's wife. But at home, yeah. I was Thais, I was Kunta. I was love, I was bump, you know, it was, it was my world, so to speak. So when I moved into his world and I was known as Dr. Moore's wife, I didn't yeah. like that, you know? Yeah. And I found myself sometimes being envious and jealous of his platform because mm -hmm. I was acting in LA. I was, you know, my career was kind of just starting off and I chose marriage over that, which is my choice. And I'm yeah. happy about my choice, but at the same time, I had to deal with what that looked like. I got pregnant the second month, had baby number one, nine months, nine months later, I had baby number two, 11 months later, I had baby number three. And so um, I was jealous of him and I was jealous of his platform. And I had to really take that up with God and be like, this is not cool because I need to be his support. You know, I need to, yeah. and I did support him, but I needed to support him fully. And I mm -hmm. did. You know, he supported me fully. He made sure even when just after I had a baby, he was like, no, you need to go take a class somewhere. And um, that's when I took the playwriting class. I wrote my first full length play. And I was mm -hmm. like, oh, I was so proud of myself. He was like, okay, now you're gonna produce it. I was like, what? I've never yeah. done that. He was like, you are. So we rented yeah. out a space at LSU and 
that turned into a whole theater company. So it wasn't for him, it wasn't just about him, you know, it was about making sure I was doing what I loved as well. And I really appreciated that about him. And so I think our worlds just started coming together more and more. He would always say, we're going to work together one day. And I was like, I don't know how you work at a university and I just have a bachelor's degree. I don't know how that's going to happen. Um, but here I am, we work together and we would take students abroad together. That to me has been a joy because our children would always go with us. We'd always get over there and play volleyball and basketball with the students and to expose students, black and brown students who some of them never been out of Texas, some of them never out of Dallas or Houston to be able to go across the world and climb the Great Wall of China at 5 a.m. in the morning and see the sunrise. And for that, this one particular young lady I'm thinking about just to sit there and tears coming down her face to say, she said, I wish my mom could see me here, you know? Yeah. So. Yeah. Love that. Love, love to hear that partnership. I think more of us need to hear that, it, you know, it, it's, it's a business part. It's a partnership. It's a personal partnership, but it's also a business partnership. So I love hearing that, that there was some agreement that greatness could come from both places you know sometimes I, I know I have friends who are in relationships where one person is all that and the other person is truly like the side of potato salad and they don't like it so I <laughs> so I appreciate I appreciate hearing that it is possible um, to, to get to the place where there's some some support and love and, and admiration and you know pulling for each other so we're going to go into a rapid fire fire exercise where I'm going to say a name and you're going to say the first thing that comes to mind. It could be a word. It could be a phrase. It could be a sentence, a sentiment. You ready? Yeah, sure. All right. Kamala Harris. Come on, HBCU. <laughs> HBCU in the house. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Stacey Abrams. Oh, um, living on purpose based upon her past. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Keisha Powerful. Bottoms, yep. Mm-hmm, what'd you say? Keisha, Keisha Bottoms. Bottoms. Oh, a woman of many hats and the leader of the Chocolate City. Mm-hmm, Andre Day. Cause I'll rise up, I'll rise <laughs> up again. Um, wow, just, I love that song. That is our, our retreat theme song. Yeah. And yes, it just, oh, she's calling women to rise up. Absolutely. You have to see if you haven't seen the United States versus Billie Holiday. She was phenomenal. Absolutely. I phenomenal. heard. Yeah. I heard. So it's out now. Yeah. I saw it last, I think last week. It was amazing. Okay. Absolutely amazing. Brianna Taylor. Mm. Brianna Taylor keeps saying her name. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then a good friend of mine, Mo. I call her Mo, but y'all call her Michelle Obama. <laughs> the first thing that came to my mind was inauguration day for Biden. I was like, was it Biden's inauguration or yours? Because you came out like, damn, damn. Yeah. She was so fly. Like it was her was stage, so clearly. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely amazing. If you were president of the University of Texas and I were interviewing you in one of our 2020 moments. And I would say for black folks, for black students, faculty, alum, the University of Texas, what are your priorities for each of those groups? Um, speaking of University of Texas and alum, can I add a name to that rapid fire? 
Can I go Certainly, yes. Yeah. Okay. I want to add Peggy Holland. Do you know her? I don't. Is she married to somebody whose last name is Holland? Or she's uh -huh. on her own? Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I just want to recognize her because she was one of the first Black women at UT when Black people start, started getting admitted. And if it weren't for her and other women like her, we wouldn't be, be here today. So Peggy Absolutely. Holland. I just want to... Yeah honor her. And so going on to your question about if I was president mm -hmm. um, of the University of Texas. Um, yes. Some things that I love about UT and the Black people at UT is I feel like there's sort of like an HBCU feel amongst a lot of them. There's a, there's a family friend atmosphere um, that I feel like needs to continue to be nurtured and grow that we need to keep um, pulling each other and helping each other and not competing with each other. So I would further fuel, fuel the HBCU aspect of um, UT. Um, mm -hmm. One thing I appreciate about my husband when he served as the VP of Division of Diversity and Community Engagement is that he was not scared to hire Black folk and yep. paid them well. And I think a lot mm -hmm. of times Black people get into these high positions and they feel like, well, I better not hire no black folk because they's gonna think I's black. Um, yeah, you're black. And so, you know, it's okay to, to yes. bring in some more black folk and pay yep. them well. Um, so I would keep on hiring black people, um, mm -hmm. open the door for others. And then the other thing is to try to obtain more scholarships for, um, Black students in grad school, undergrad, and hire more Black faculty in the STEM programs. Yes. Um, not the one or two that are over there. We need more. Yeah, listen, I was uh, in Macomb School of Business a few years ago and was waiting on the Black, even lecturer, to come through. Professor, I mean, I'll take a lecturer. I'll take an adjunct. And um never happened. So I, I love that aspect for sure. As we look kind of beyond the University of Texas, because we're talking about Black women in America, we've talked about young Black women, we've talked about, you know, some very high profile Black women. If we talk about the two to three priorities for Black women in the next four years, right, you have the opportunity to sit with Kamala Harris and President Joe Biden to talk about, here's what we need to do with Black women in the next four years. What are you saying to both of them? Um, well, of course, one thing is the, the criminalization of black women mm. um, needs to be handled. So mm -hmm. I think about when I was in college, I, or even in high school, I was often pulled over um, by LAPD and asked, where are you going? Why are yeah. you in this neighborhood? Um, and they had no reason for pulling me over. And, you know, I had to contain myself and not be like, well, where are you going? Right. Um, you know, just pull it together. And then I was even arrested. They thought I was prostituting and I was just waiting for AAA to come unlock my keys out of my car. I was arrested by three police officers for prostituting. And I watched them watch me. They drove by several times and I was in a high prostitution area on Sunset Boulevard, but mm -hmm. all three of them, all three of the police officers were in three separate cars. When they finally came up on me and um, they almost tased me, they threw me up against the wall. They were in one car 
they were in one car. And I look back on that and I realized, I believe they were gonna try and take advantage of me is the reason why they got in one car. Mm -hmm. um, but once they started digging deeper and realized I was a student at UCLA, they, um, they let me go with, I didn't let me go. They still took me to the station, but they didn't have their way with me. Sure. Um, yeah. So yeah. just that, like even today, I took my daughter shopping, but she drove in the car ahead of me because I had to leave early. And I got, she got away from me a little ways, right? Um, and so when I finally caught up to her, there was a police officer on a motorbike behind her. Now, mind you, she's already been pulled over twice and she's only 17. Once because she was speeding, but once for no reason at all. And so when I came up behind the police officer, I was like, oh, there's a police officer right there. You know, as black people, we always notice that. And right. then I noticed the car in front of her was the car in front of the police officer was my daughter's car I was like oh wow I know my daughter's nervous because she had a panic attack the first time she got pulled over just because of Breonna Taylor because right, yeah. of my story because of yeah. um George Floyd because of so many stories she had a mm -hmm. panic attack the first time and so I immediately today started praying for her Lord God calm her nerves help her not to be anxious help the police officer not to pull her over Mm -hmm. And sure enough, he didn't pull over, but he's, I could tell he was following her because instead of being right behind her, when she got to the red light, he pulled up kind of on the side of her to look into her car and to look at her. And I was like, pull her over and I'm right behind you. <laughs> you don't know mama's right here. I'm watching. I am watching. Yeah. Yeah. And sure enough, they turned the corner. He followed her for a little while and then took off, you know. And I asked her when we got there, I was like, did you see the officer? She said, yeah, mommy, I wanted to call you, but... I didn't want him to see me like talking. Yeah. And, yeah, I was like, I was covering you in prayer, baby, you know, yeah. and um, you were okay. So that part, yeah. I would, that needs to happen. Um, the pay gap needs to be dealt with. Um, black women, I think about everything I do at UT, I need to be being paid clearly <laughs> way more than I'm getting paid. Yeah. Um, I do a lot, you know, and it runs, I do everything from graphic designing to speaking and all the behind mm -hmm. the stuff, just everything. And I think we as black women, we do way more than what's required just to get that much money. Um, yep. That needs to be handled. Um, exposure. So we do a New York trip. We take the women to New York and expose them to different jobs, different fields. We take them to, like I said, to study abroad, give them global experience. So mm -hmm. exposure for not just black women who are in college, but black women who live in South Dallas, black women who live in Compton, black yeah. women who live in Beaumont, you know, the exposure needs to happen. Yes, and, yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, I would encourage women, black women to dream big. Um, like I said, in high school, I didn't really dream and one of the things I've heard is if your dream doesn't scare you, then your dream isn't big enough. Mm -hmm. And that to me was just like, like fireworks went off. I was like, none of my dreams scare me. So yeah. let me, you know, let me write down some dreams that do scare me. And then let me pick one and just start trying to figure it out. Love it. Absolutely. Love it. Love it. Thais, this has been really amazing. People always say this has been amazing, but the, the, ground that we covered, the breadth and the width of topic and tenor that we covered was phenomenal. And thank you for being willing to share this in this platform with people we don't know who are watching and people who will see it long after we've signed off. It was, it certainly fed my soul. And I know that it's touched 
women and men who've been out there listening to us. So thank you very much for being willing to do that. I do believe we're going to be able to answer some questions before we sign off tonight. So we'll ask our, our producer to go ahead and send those questions through if we have those so we can get to those. That was great. That was amazing. I'm going to watch the replay and I was here. <laughs> thank you so much. I remember when I first met you, you just inspired me and I just loved the way you, you know how you have those women who are a little bit older than you just love the way they move. I was like, oh, I want you to be my mentor. And I remember asking you that. <laughs> so I remember that. Yeah, I remember that. Oh man. Could Tai speak on therapy for the girls? Um, I don't know what that means in terms of, you know, in general, but wherever you want to take that, what do you think about therapy for them? I think therapy is very important. I think having skills and tools rather to mm -hmm know how to be mentally healthy and mentally strong and work through things is very important. Like I have a, a straight up toolkit um, and I open it probably daily. Um, yeah. And in there are things to deal with my insecurities, things to deal with when I'm feeling like, you know, anxious or mm -hmm. whatever it is. And I pull those tools out and some of them came from therapy. Some of them came from me, not official therapy, but just talking to my older cousins or my friends. Yeah or my sister. So I think there's the unofficial therapy that sometimes, you know, we don't, we don't give it its full credit, you know? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But then that other therapy where you're going to um, a, a trained professional, I think sure. is important. At UT in past years, when we'd send um, a lot of the black women to therapy, they would come back and say, I don't want to go up there because they wouldn't be treated with empathy and sympathy. Like, I remember one black student telling me she went to the uh, counseling program and the lady just kind of looked at her like, oh, well, you're just going to have to figure it out. And it was, you know, yeah. that wasn't what she said, but that was the disposition she threw off mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. she felt worse. So yeah. I, for me, when I go to a therapist, I like to find somebody who looks like me a lot of times. Mm -hmm. um, so I think therapy is very important. It's important that we learn how to govern our minds, um, not let anything just come into our minds, not just let any thought live there. Yeah. If you're thinking a negative thought about yourself or life in general, you have the power to stop that thought and yeah. replace it with a positive thought. And if you don't know that, you just go on thinking crap. Right, right. You know? Think of all the stories that we've, that we've been told about ourselves and the stories that we've told ourselves that haven't served us that in many cases weren't even true about who we are and what we could become so i i can appreciate the therapy conversation a lot where do you see fly in the next 10 years great question um like i said earlier if your dream doesn't scare you then your dream isn't big enough so when i heard that and i started thinking of bigger dreams I said, ooh, wouldn't it be nice to have a fly at every PWI in the universe, at in the yeah. nation? And I was like, yeah. that's a scary dream. Mm -hmm. um, and I remember telling somebody and they were like, oh, the 500 year plan. I was like, yeah, I guess. <laughs> I guess it could take that long, you know? <laughs> um, mm -hmm. But or it could take this, five years. Huh? Or it could take five years. It could, especially in this virtual world, we've already, right. Yeah. multiply because now people can log on when we're having our meetings mm -hmm. and yep. we didn't necessarily go to their campus but they were able to log on so things yep. could change like that and so I would love for us to have access to more universities so many black women I meet 
30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s say, why didn't we have one of those when I was in school? Ooh, child. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, let's see. I don't see any other questions. Uh, so I am going to give you the opportunity to say one more thing as we sign off. One more thing you want folks watching at home right now to, to know, to do, to embrace as we move forward in 2021. Um, and they probably can't see that. I just dropped that in the chat. But right. um, yeah. to know, to do, to embrace. Ooh, good question. To Either one. We just, we just finished our um, Fly Leadership Retreat. It's every first weekend in March. And this year's theme was self-ish. Not selfish, mm -hmm. but self-ish. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh, ish. Like cool. black -ish. And so, Yeah. <laughs> and so... Our goal was to um, help young ladies not be self-centered and, and only think of themselves, but to make sure they think of themselves, make mm -hmm. sure they're a part of the equation and to love themselves fully, um, to be willing to say no um, when it's you know too much, like no is a full sentence we talked about. And yeah. so I guess I would just say, um, to take time with yourself, get to know yourself better, love yourself, and, and know that life is never gonna be perfect, it's hard, but keep getting those tools and using those tools so that you can and live well and enjoy life. Fantastic, and Thais did just drop some resources in the chat role for everybody, podcast, how you can reach her, all that great stuff. Please plug into Thais, whether you're a, if you're a young woman, for sure, if you're an older woman, for sure, but plug in and let's keep growing our communities. Let's keep challenging UT to be better for us uh, because it does not happen without folks like Thais Bassmore challenging, picking, ticking, <laughs> prodding. That's how we affect change, y'all. So Thais, thank you so much for being on tonight. It was great to see you again and to talk with you. And just thank you for all the gems and the treasures that you share with us tonight. And until I see you again, welcome. Welcome. <laughs> thank you so much, friend.